namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa bhutang damang sangang namasang While you are listening, or not listening, depending on your preference, <laughs> if you just uh, try and uh, settle your tension a little bit uh, again into the body, as if you were meditating. Particularly a form of meditation, of course, that I'm trying to point towards, not so much kind of trying hard to concentrate on something, but just paying attention, being present, noticing. What is actually happening right now? Which we might call the actuality of our life, how it appears, how things, how experiences appear to us at this moment, which is of course the one direct reality that we have. If you talk about our experience, our life, or think about it, we might go into abstractions, the narratives, our memories, our stories, our self-images, uh, all kinds of implications, extensions, to that basic sense of being somebody, having a life, having a history, having our preferences, all of it of course based on, seemingly, seems to be based on, on memory, our memories, the memories that We are somewhat generally aware of being accessible to us, giving us our some form of identity, extended identity, beyond the present experience. But in the end, this is what we have, isn't it? We are always here, we are always now. And these stories, preferences, narratives, self-image is something that is precisely or vaguely in details or as a general idea available, present to us now. It's, a, it's, it's an experience. No? So just notice that right now, how that is. Bringing our attention right back into the actuality of our experience right now what is actually there. 
So like the, 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 the Buddha uh, pointed out or used this, this scheme as, for example, the, the sixfold sense experience as the actuality of what we can actually experience, uh, seeing, hearing, feeling, tasting, smelling, and thinking or imagining the mental experience, whether in language or in images. That's what we've got. What we can investigate within that experience and our relationship to that experience is where we have to realize or we're invited to realize the validity, the applicability of the Buddha's teachings, the Buddha's recommendation. That's and always where he's pointing towards where his teaching comes together, becomes actual, actualized for ourselves, can be actualized for ourselves. That's where it converges, that experience. That's why that was one reason, or a very primary reason, it seems to me, or how the Buddha was talking about becoming a refuge unto ourselves. It's this saying of the Buddha that the uh, Ajahn Chah quoted in that calendar verse for this month, become a refuge or be a refuge unto yourself. And then Ajahn Chah comments, as that continues, by saying, who else, and with this rhetorical question, who else could be a refuge for you? And he concludes by saying that the heart is the only true refuge. Which makes it clear that he's obviously not talking about ourselves in terms of personality, or preferences, ideas. He doesn't recommend that aspect of self as a refuge, but he's mentioning the heart. And if Arjun Shah talks about the heart, then that's probably an English translation, uh, in this case, English translation of the Pali word chitta, which is translated as mind, mind or heart, that's, which feels how it feels right now, or knows how it feels right now to be sitting here, to be thinking or not thinking, to be imagining or not imagining, to have sense impressions. That which is sensitive, that which knows, notices, and has some innate intelligence to evaluate our experience. Noticeably, according to the Buddha and other spiritual teachers, and this innate kind of intelligence for human beings, having an inherently ethical sense to it, ethical sensitivity. The Buddha was referring to a sense of moral shame, a fear of wrongdoing, something that is a 
equality that is natural to the human heart, which can be cultivated, which he called the protectors of the world. Without that, and we wouldn't have any moral compass, any orientation on how to kind of relate to our experience to other people, how to live together. So that's why the, the, the Buddha uh, gives this the basic criteria for our investigation, our, our, our investigation into our experience as evaluating mm, to the best of our knowledge that we have developed, the best of our, our understanding, or what is skillful and what is unskillful. That refers to that moral sensitivity, the moral intelligence that we have to understand whether something is leading to well-being and the question of what kind of well-being, whether it's blameless, harmless well-being, is this long-term benefit or does it lead to harm? And then the implication for the practice, of course, to make the effort to try and develop that which we understand as being wholesome, leading to a morally blameless kind of well-being, developing the goodness in the heart, and trying to abandon that which leads to suffering. So in that we have to be reliant ultimately on ourselves, nobody else can really reliably decide that for ourselves or do that for ourselves. We're going to have to internalize that. Mm-hmm. So it was very clear in pointing out that we do need others as support to give us ideas, to show us possibilities, show us a way, as they say, direction, give us a map. Probably all of us have some memory about how we perhaps came first across spiritual teachings, perhaps the Buddhist teachings, maybe very poignant, kind of salient experiences, or just sense of a gradual development of moral sensitivity, ideas about right conduct, about meaning. Mm. Much or most, or perhaps everything of it, ultimately we can kind of trace back to other people who gave us those ideas in the first place. Our parents, friends, teachers, maybe books or, or these days websites, but even those books of course have been written by other people. The websites have been created by other people. Mm-hmm. We get the inspiration from outside usually. Or if you feel we don't know, of course, the, the ultimate sources, but we feel some inspiration coming from, from the inside, as it were, from ourselves, our own reflections. Uh, usually we need other people to, to reflect them back, back on us, to encourage them. But then in the end, of course, to realize the benefit of those teachings, to realize for ourselves that which actually works, to confirm them, is something that only we ourselves can do. As the Buddha was sometimes was talking about a confirmed faith. Faith, of course, has a place also in the, in, in the Buddhist teaching. Perhaps not quite in the same way as, as more kind of faith-based 
religions, so not in the sense that you have to believe something in, in order to be in, as it were, in order to be saved. But there might be things that we pick up from, from, from the Buddha's teaching. We see that we, we haven't realized for ourselves yet. We can just make, maybe make sense to us, but we don't really know yet from our own experience. Some things maybe we feel we can't know. We haven't got the, the, um, the tools. We haven't developed our mind, our heart, to the extent that we can actually realize the truth of those teachings. So at the beginning, there's probably quite a bit of faith involved if we take on a path, a teaching, of which we may maybe understand some, some uh, initial steps or make some uh, sense to us so that we feel encouraged to engage with it. But part of it we, we take on, on faith. It's the same as uh, if, like if you travel somewhere and you, you, you use a map. No? You've got some, you need some faith that the people who created the map actually knew what they were doing. Or if you use your sat-nav, you only need some, if you, if you use a sat-nav, well, you probably because you've got some come face in the technology of the sat-nav and those people who put in the programs there to, to guide you along the way and hopefully, you know, they are up to date. And then you hopefully you also have some reason kind of skepticism. You don't entirely relate, uh, entirely you have an entire kind of blind, blind face in it. You know that maybe your program is a little bit out of date, for example, or you know programmers make mistakes. Mm-hmm. You still have to actually check what your, your setnav or your map tells you against the, your actually direct experience of what you see when you look through your windscreen. Mm-hmm. Does it actually make sense? And you might have, well, some of you might have had, if you use those things, had some, some of those, you know, hopefully, you know, experience that remain on, on the comical side and doesn't, doesn't end up in tragedy. You know, sometimes one reads about those, those things. People having too much faith in their sat and ending up in, in the hole in the road that's left there by a building site, which their sat didn't say anything about. Or your co-driver tells you, ah, yes, turn left. And you turn immediately. And, <laughs> and actually, the left turn was just uh, 20 meters down the road. It wasn't, it wasn't the road. It was just a parking place that you turned into, those kind of things. So we, we have to check, and the Buddha always encourages us no? to check those teachings all the time along the way against our experience and to contemplate them under the, the, those criteria. You know, does it make sense to us? Does it seem from our understanding to be wholesome, to lead towards a sustainable and, and blameless kind of well-being? And to the extent that we apply those teachings and hopefully from our experience and start to realize some of the benefits, see what works for us or see what maybe remains dubious or needs to be discarded, then our face becomes confirmed face. It's actually based on our own experience. Once we, you know, as we go along the road and we see um, what we pass on our journey does actually confirm what our map or setnav is telling us, well, then our face gets stronger and when we arrive finally, but only when we arrive at our destination, then we know, oh, yeah, this, this really did work. It was, it, it, they got it right.
And where do we ultimately confirm and realize those teachings? It's in this, what we experience now. What are we experiencing right now? Those six senses that the Buddha was talking about. How does it feel to sit here right now? To listen to my voice? To notice what's going through your mind in response or reaction to what I'm saying? Or, or as a response or reaction to other things that happened to you earlier today? Or discussions you might have had, experiences that you had? The Buddha once said that all Dhammas converge on feeling. That's a curious statement. All Dhammas converge on feeling. In fact, not long ago, a bhikkhu friend of mine who was reading that in a reference to that in a, in a book actually asked me to to explain, to elucidate, he, he had some doubt. He thought that maybe that might even be a mistranslation or something like that. Because it sounds odd, isn't it? All dhammas, all things, converge on feeling. Maybe one would expect something a bit more spiritual or, or magnificent, you know? All dhammas, all things converge on, on what? On feeling. Why feeling out of all things? So, how does that make sense in the context of the Buddha's teaching, what we have heard, and of our experience. Come back to, our, to your experience right now. So there are visual experiences, sounds, maybe some form of hopefully subtle kind of smell, taste, physical sensations, Thoughts, imaginations, views, opinions, memories. Now, how do we feel about all those things? We've got feelings about those things. Isn't it? The Buddha simplified kind of the aspect of feeling uh, in a very handy way into just, just three categories pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. So, all of these things, that this, this manifold kind of experiences that we can have, kind of countless, isn't it? If you look at subtly enough, the details, there's countless amounts of possible dif different individual experiences that we can have. But certainly in the context of the Buddhist teaching, was talking about, who, who, who said, you know, he was only interested in teaching about dukkha or dis-ease, unsatisfactoriness and the ending of it, all of this, this myriad of sensations, of experiences, they all converge on feeling, pleasant, unpleasant or neutral. That's kind of the linchpin, if you're interested in what? In, in dis-ease and freedom from dis-ease. Why? Well, because the Buddha was talking that the, the basic underlying um, causes for dissatisfaction with life is what he called, uh, well, sometimes in English translation, kind of, uh, it's kind of, um, yeah, translated as, as greed, hatred, and delusion. You know, those three, three forces. 
And the Buddha connected them directly to these three types of feeling. Now, whenever we attend unwisely to pleasant feeling, desire, or in extreme cases, greed, thirst arises. We want it, we want more. Uh, unwise attention to unpleasant feeling, aversion arises. Or more extreme forms, hatred, you know, wanting to get rid of. And perhaps a little bit more subtle, not so quite obvious perhaps, but whatever unwise attention to, when we intend unwisely or not wisely to, to what we call neutral feeling, so which neither falls in the category of uh, I like it, pleasant or unpleasant, but somewhere in the middle, probably often means actually unwise attention in that case probably means no attention. Usually we just don't, don't pay attention, we're not bothered. It's not, you know, it's no, it's no, it's no, not enough stimulus in there. You know, if, if you like it, then oh, we wake up, oh, nice. You know? Or if it's unpleasant, oh, uh, get away from that. But if it's kind of neutral, um, well, we usually just yeah, don't really look very closely. Just take it for granted. Um, or meditation before you sleep. <laughs> Common experience. <laughs> if there's not enough pain to keep you awake. <laughs> And you don't get the pleasure of samadhi. You just stay somewhere in the kind of mm, neutral, boring kind of middle bit. And, uh, the mind gets kind of dull and foggy. Mm. So it's feeling, isn't it, that that's, that's, that we are getting kind of this, this you know, which, which stirs us, which brings up intention ourselves, which brings up uh, our the basic movement of, of desire and aversion, what we go for, what we try to get away from, what we like, what we hang on to, what we dismiss. Mm. All our emotional life evolves around, or is built up out of these very basic building blocks of, of feeling. So that's why in the Buddhist teaching are all dhammas converge on feelings. So that's a very, very important aspect to contemplate. Uh, in our experience, our direct experience, like right now, how does it feel to be sitting here? Whatever comes up in your mind, in your various senses, do you like it? Do you dislike it? Which forms do you like take? You know, the, the, again, it's a, it's a whole kind of range of forms, you know, that, of, of types of desire, or, interest, the craving, um, certainly much more shades to it than we have even concepts or words for, but which, which grow out of the sense of pleasant feeling, you know, kind of habitual responses perhaps to that. And we also, all, all of course, we have our different uh, individual kind of um, mixes, you know, styles, strategies, how to deal with this. And the, what we identify as unpleasant. You know? Notice how you feel about it, how your mind responds or reacts to it. And that goes all the way from basic sensations, like if you're uncomfortable in your sitting, you know, physical sensations, or if it becomes very pleasant maybe, you feel, oh, this is getting nice, good meditation. To, of course, our, the, the views 
that we hold, the opinions that we have, any kind of opinions, opinions about each other, about ourselves, political opinions, opinions about practice, opinions about the Buddha's teaching. The content is one thing. The other thing is, well, how do you feel about those? You know, what kind of feeling do you get out of them? Because even the attachment to views, our relationship to views, is basically, it converges on feeling. It applies the same. You know, we hold on to particular views, ideas, because those are also identifications that give us pleasant feeling. Or if our opinions get challenged, our understanding of the world, what comes up? If it's unpleasant feeling, insecurity or something like that, you know, it does inform us about why we are so, if we are, so attached to a particular view of, of say, being the Buddhist teaching, the view of reality, of ourselves, of other people. So again, if you contemplate those very complex activities of the mind, you can actually simplify your meditation and going, actually by going right to the, to the core that linchpin where everything converges by looking at the feeling behind it. What's the feeling behind a particular opinion that I have about myself or about practice? It's really a, a way of, of deepening our practice. So, like uh, Ajahn Chah was saying, about the heart is the only true refuge. No. Yourself as a heart, not as your, yourself as, as the holder of opinions, no. your opinions and views about yourself. But that in yourself, in your experience, which can feel those things, sensitive to, knows the opinions, and also sensitive to the feeling, with it, knows the feeling that comes with your, with your opinions. No the pleasure that you get out of knowing or feeling that you know something, of having a view that other people agree with. The displeasure that maybe comes out of dispute, you know, if you can't convince somebody of, of what you think is right. Notice you know, the feeling behind it. Why is it so important to convince somebody else, if that is important to you? you know, when it comes up, notice in that moment, you know, why is it so important to have agreement, for example? or to appear intelligent. Why maybe at some point we are so resistant to put down and question our particular point of view. That's, that's again, that's where practice comes together, where, where, where it converges when we're looking into attachment to views and opinions. It's the same like with attachment to ice cream or or pleasant experiences in meditation. Mm -hmm. Of course, it's very likely um, that, even, like, if you listen to, well, if you listen to me right now, or if you read a book on Dhamma, or read the suttas, um, that again, what we what we pick up. What we remember, what we listen to, what we're interested in is what that which gives us pleasant feeling. 
that which we don't like, which gives us unpleasant feeling, we are likely to somehow quickly forget again or not take in in the first place. So that relates back to the fact that uh, the Buddha was saying that we, we have to be our own refuge in the end, or as Ajahn Chah extrapolates, how, who, how could anybody else ever be your refuge? Because even if you think we are, say, we are the followers of the Buddha, or any particular spiritual teacher, be aware that you're never actually following the Buddha or the spiritual teacher that you choose, but you follow that which you understand that spiritual teacher to be, or that which you understand, that which actually comes through, you know, what you have picked up from what the Buddha's teaching are, which is already filtered you know, through your own understanding, your own capacities, perhaps your own preferences. And so if you always just, just pick up um, the teachings, like say of, of the Buddha, if you pick up a book of, you know, of the, the record of the Buddha's teachings, the suttas, and we, we, we probably, I mean, if, if your mind is like mine, you immediately you go for the things that feel, oh, well, this is really interesting, I like this one. Oh, this, wow, this is maybe the teaching for me. But if you only ever just take in and accept, of course, the teachings that give us a good feeling, it might not be a, a, such a good advice. It might not actually take us all that far. If the Buddha is basically right, uh, that greed, hatred, and delusions are the causes of suffering, and that they are intimately connected to, to our default uh, reactions to pleasant, painful, neutral feeling. So sometimes, uh, so if you're a sp spiritual practitioner, then we sometimes, we, well, we are certainly, we don't dismiss pleasant feeling because it's, it's pleasant feeling, but we are willing to question it. We are willing to consider that sometimes maybe what we don't like might be actually just what we need to hear or just what we need to take an interest in. So that is a, another way of uh, translating um, that kind of famous um, characterization of the Buddhist teaching as a middle way. <laughs> it's actually curiously also an interesting way, that one that we, we can always easily adapt and bend to our own preferences. You know, we always feel that what we are doing is the middle way because we define what is one extreme and what is the other. No? <laughs> then it's always easy to find that what you are just doing is a, is, is a middle way. And any way you go into, off from what you're doing right now, that would be going to one extreme or the other. No? So um, it's, it's a good example for, to, to see how our mind really, um, with its cleverness, can in the end kind of justify anything what we are doing. But one way of translating this is to say, like, depending on our tendency, we might be more the, the greedy kind of type of person. No. Um, the same as with, with sensory greed or self-image or something, we can transpose it, or we're likely to trans transpose it also into our spiritual life. No. If you have the default thing that if something it's, it's pleasant, say in our meditation, then that must be good meditation. No. Or if I like something about a spiritual teaching, then that must be right because I, my intuition tells me, yeah, this is really for me. You know, this this feels this feels right because it feels good. It's pleasant, <laughs> and then we we create our own kind of designer spiritual life out of the different bits and pieces from different teachings, which please our preferences. You know? so we that will never take us beyond our preferences, of course. So it will, um, by definition, therefore uh, limit range of our, of our development, spiritual development. 
Or maybe we are more the aversion type. You say, well, medicine has to be bitter. If it's not bitter, medicine doesn't work. So spiritual practice, to be real, must be, must be painful, must be hard. I'm going to have to push myself. You know? that's, that's what the Buddha calls the first, the first one, you know, the, the, the pleasure-based preference. It's called with self-indulgence. You, know, you can do that, of course, with ice cream or such like things. But you can also do that with spiritual experiences, with meditation. Always going towards carving out a pleasant abiding for yourself and feeling that is the path. You know, the more pleasure, the better. No, and the other, the other extreme, you called um, asceticism, self-modification. No, few people probably these days, and certainly in the West, on spiritual paths will take self-modification to the extreme as that the Buddha did, or, or you, know, you know, kind of ascetics at the Buddhist time, but. Look at that not just in this, it's, as it's in, in the form of its external kind of extreme appearances, but just as a tendency of the mind. You know, the idea that you know, it has to hurt, otherwise it can't be good. You know? Look at that. It sometimes just appears in subtle forms in the mind, you know, the more kind of self-critical, kind of pushed, kind of aversive type inside. So the Buddha then was defining the, the, the middle way, his teaching as the middle way, as not giving in to neither of those extremes. So suppose... Um, extremes which are based on personal preferences, content of the mind, um, activity of the mind, greed, hatred, and delusion based on our preferred reactions to pain and pleasure. No. Instead, then here, the middle way is not some kind of mediocre kind of not too much of this, not too much of that, not don't get out of my comfort comfort zone, not too much pleasure, pleasure that's too exciting or might get out of control, not too much pain either. So we always stay kind of somehow lukewarm and cozy. <laughs> Maybe that's more the, the third type, isn't it? Maybe that's more the delusion type. You know, it's not, you know, never enough, not, not have too much you know, happening, just keep things fairly neutral. Well, in this interpretation, well, then the middle way would transcend both of those extremes, which are preference-based, by going straight to the heart. The heart is that in ourselves which knows pain and pleasure, and which knows aversion and greed in all its you know, diverse forms, knows them for what they are, knows that those things are arise and cease, and is able actually to just feel the feeling as it is. No? We might know, okay, this is pleasant, and that's it. Stops there. This is unpleasant and just stop there. To the extent that we can actually, that our capacity for just being aware of experiences increases, becomes more stable. Mm. We can just embrace our experience. No? We can embrace our, uh, the, the feelings that arise for us, the experiences, the sensations, their feeling tone, as well as maybe our initial um, emotional responses to it, without believing them, without acting them out. So that these impulses, preferences, emotions don't define us, don't push us around, but can just be received and known as experiences, just the way they are, or the way certainly they appear to be to us right now, you know, depending on our capacity for comprehending, perceiving you know, the, the truth, the actuality of our experience right now, and then just be able to stay with them. Mm. 
So then we don't go neither into the extreme of self-indulgence, into just believing, following what feels good, believing that something must be right just because we have appointed us to a particular opinion, a particular camp. Nor to the extreme of aversion and perhaps self-criticism, putting ourselves down, mm. or experiences or, or others. Just staying in the middle, which means just the, the knowing and experiencing the, the peace and the spaciousness that comes with, with that knowing, the recognition there's always now experience something that is already bigger than the experience itself, mm. which is just present. Peaceful, calm by nature. Allowing things to be the way they appear to be right now. So when we can do that, and to the extent we can do that, to that extent our heart as awareness becomes a true refuge. Then we don't need other people's views and opinions. We don't even need our own views or opinions. We just see those as things to appear that appear to be just this way. But we are, as it were, at home already, just with whatever appears to be present right now. And then we are independent. 